Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. On the morning of November the 1st, 1755, the day of the Feast of All Saints, a devastating earthquake struck the Portuguese capital of Lisbon. The city shook for about five minutes, tearing open deep fissures in the ground and triggering fires that swept through the urban landscape. People who rushed down to the shore to escape falling buildings watched as the sea receded, revealing shipwrecks on the ocean floor. Forty minutes after the initial quake, a tsunami struck, sending a wall of water into the city that compounded an already desperate situation. When it was all over, tens of thousands were dead. The Lisbon earthquake was a disaster of epic proportions, so much so that it became the subject of the first major international disaster relief effort. People from around the Atlantic world contributed funds to Lisbon and its inhabitants, including a 100,000-pound donation from George II, the King of England. The quake also marked a change in how people around the Atlantic world responded to disasters. Surely many who awoke that day to celebrate All Saints Day attributed the devastation to God's wrath. But in the era of the Enlightenment, many more still looked to reason and science as modes of explanation and how to alleviate the suffering. On today's episode, Dr. Cindy Kerner of George Mason University joins me to discuss the origins of our modern attitudes towards disasters. She is the author of the new book, Inventing Disaster, The Culture of Calamity from the Jamestown Colony to the Johnstown Flood. As you might have divined from the book's subtitle, how we respond to disasters like the coronavirus, the California wildfires, or Hurricane Katrina is a product of a long history that dates back to the 17th century. Now, before we get started, we wanted to let you know that you have a chance to win a signed copy of Mary B. Thompson's new book, The Only Unavoidable Subject of Regret, George Washington Slavery and the Enslaved Community at Mount Vernon. To have a shot at winning, you'll have to listen to some of our recent episodes and take a little quiz because I'm a teacher who believes in homework. Check the webpage for this episode or the Washington Library's Twitter feed for details. And with that, get ready for an explosive conversation and let's invent disaster with Cindy Kerner. You know, I mean, I know he talked, I think the person he talked to before me was Liz Barron, who is one of my favorite historians. I just think she's absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. But I tend to follow her late. Whatever she does, I'll do. Well, yeah, yeah. no, I mean, you know, this whole, I think she is so much better than most historians at both you know, writing the kind of history that engages a popular audience, but really, you know, in a scholarly... So she's writing about the Civil War, and so people are like, oh, I want to read this. It's about the Civil War. It's got battles and stuff. But she really, you know, pulls no punches when it comes to, you know, okay, this is the situation with black people, and women are doing this. And and I think, I mean, I I think that that's a really admirable kind of historian to be, to engage a popular audience who kind of like your work because it's well-written and it's interesting. Um, And that's a way that you sort of suck them into reading, like, the truth. Mm Mm-hmm. 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 So when you started to write this book, then, did you have that kind of same thought in mind that you wanted to reach a wider audience that you might have with, with previous books you've written? Well, I think I reached a pretty wide audience with the Martha Jefferson Randolph mm-hmm. book, both because it was a biography and because it was, like, related to Jefferson and people like to read things about Jefferson and the other founders. Um, I also think that people, general readers, non-academics, know exactly what they're getting with a biography, you know, in the beginning someone is born, in the end that person dies, you know, and, yeah. and, and then the book is over. And, <laughs> and, and you know, and, and in between the story, I mean, it's not necessarily predictable and ideally it's an interesting one, but I think, I, I think biographers have a real advantage when it comes to attracting a wider readership. Um, with this book, um, 
I hope I reached a wider audience. One would think that, like, things that blow up would, you know, would sort, <laughs> exactly. of, would sort of like, oh, wow, there's explosions in it. Yeah. I want to read this book. Or, ooh. And, 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 I mean, some of the, um, you know, descriptions of, like, the victims in the aftermath of the Lisbon earthquake and certainly in the aftermath of American steamboat explosions are just really, you know, compelling, like the mangled bodies sure. and the arms torn off. And, I mean, I would hope that... I would hope that that would be engaging um, for a wider audience. I mean, I think the main stumbling block for um, general readers in my book, quite frankly, is the first chapter, which is about the 17th century. It's about Jamestown. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you're using these 17th century sources with the funky spelling and the weird, you know, word usage. And, I mean, I almost sometimes tell people that, you know, if you read the introduction and you think it's interesting and you start reading chapter one and you're like, really? Um, Skip it. You can skip it. You know, I mean, the whole point of the Jamestown chapter is that all sorts of bad things were happening, but people weren't responding to them culturally as, you know, quote unquote disasters the way we would today. What was the origins of this project? The origins of this project was um, weirdly um, Superstorm Sandy. I mean, obviously, I'm an early mm-hmm. Americanist, so I wasn't really interested in writing about something that happened in 2012. But um, Superstorm Sandy, which you know, pretty much obliterated the Jersey Shore, um, which is a place that that you know I've been going to since I was literally an infant, mm-hmm. and and a lot of places that that I really care about. Um, were, if not destroyed, then then seriously messed up as a result of the storm. And so I really kind of obsessively um, read about it in newspapers, mm-hmm. um, watched TV news reports, um, both, you know, sort of like on CNN and then local stuff online. And, um, and I, to be honest, I never pay attention quite that carefully um, to particularly TV news, but I was obsessed about this, and and by, you know, just kind of watching, 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 and reading, 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 um, I sort of came to the conclusion that the way Americans respond to disasters is is almost a very kind of ritualized um, thing mm-hmm. um, in our own time, and so. Um, the first thing that happens is you get the reports that are pretty much quantitative, how many people died, how many dollars and property losses. Um, the next phase is um, all the human interest stories, you know, about the, the, you know, the sad people who lost their puppy or their children or their elderly people or whatever, about the people who were coming in and trying to provide disaster relief or raise money to, to, to help people. And then the third phase um, is really sort of post-disaster investigations, um, recriminations, sometimes lawsuits and mm-hmm. things like that. And so, you know, I kind of started thinking about that um, and also thinking about, you know, all the bad things that happened in places like Jamestown where there are famines and there are epidemics and there's a hurricane. But, but I mean, quite clearly people are responding to those events in a very different way. Sure. And so my research question became, um, where does the modern culture of calamity, where does the modern way of doing disaster um, come mm-hmm. from? What are its historical origins? And so... You know, unlike a biography, um, there was no obvious beginning to this story. I mm-hmm. just chose Jamestown as a baseline because it's 
pretty well known as a place where lots of people died from yeah. a lot of different causes. Didn't go well. Did not go well. I mean, I think something like five out of six um, of the settlers died in the first 17 years before it became a royal colony. Sure. Um, and the end point, you know, quite honestly, I could have gone on and taken it all the way up into the 20th or 21st century, but... There are people in disaster studies who have written about that. Um, and also, you know, I'm an early Americanist. Even mm-hmm. going as far as the Johnstown flood was a little bit like, eh, really, <laughs> do I want to do this? And I kind of felt like an undergraduate doing a lot of my research on the Internet. Sure. Um, but, but, but I kind of figured also that if people read the book six chapters and they liked it, and they got to the epilogue, and they were kind of like, eh, Johnstown, meh. They would have liked the rest of the book, and it would be okay. Yeah. And if they really didn't like the rest of the book, they wouldn't have made it to the epilogue, and it probably <laughs> wouldn't have mattered. So. Exactly. So that's kind of the origins, and it's a weird origin story, And but I think it helps account for this book being like really, really different from anything else I've ever done, oh, which sure. tends to focus mainly on, more exclusively on... Um, early America, say, before 1820. Mm-hmm. I've written a lot about women. There are women in this book. I mean, women get mangled in steamboat accidents, yeah. too. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we say the word disaster, then, what what is a good working definition for disaster? That's a great question. Thank um, you. And there are people, <laughs> there are people, in this, so there's actually an interdisciplinary field called disaster studies, capital D, capital S, um, and there are sociologists and, and government people and environmental people and, and you know, um, public policy people and historians. Um, and, you know, they have never really come up with a definition that that is concise but yet kind of acceptable mm-hmm. to all concern. Um, the definition that... that I'm using that is sort of cobbled together um, from different things that some of those people have said is that um, a disaster is um, a bad thing that happens um, that results in significant losses of property and life. And then I would also add that it is something that is also basically unintended mm-hmm. and and not foreseeable. So, you know, like when I teach um, Disasters in History, which is a really fun course to teach, um, you know, students will, you know, there's always one student who, you know, wants to write about a military history, like a battle that just goes really bad. Okay, yeah. so... Gettysburg was a disaster for the Confederacy, Um, you know, or even like, you know, school shootings and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't let them do those projects because it seems to me that, yeah, I mean, an outcome of a battle can be bad or costly or even tragic. But if you're in a war and you're fighting a battle, the loss of life should be foreseeable. Mm -hmm. It certainly is intentional. Um, and therefore, even though, you know, rhetorically, we can call Gettysburg um, a disaster for the Confederacy, it's not a disaster in quite the same way, mm-hmm. in quite this sort of clinical sort of way. So, I mean, I would say intentionality yeah. is, is really, really important. Um, 
you know, but obviously even that definition is a little bit problematic. I mean, Hurricane Katrina was obviously a disaster. Um, the hurricane itself it, it is, you know, is clearly not intentional, but we can, we can have a debate yeah. about whether or not it was intentional to make the levees not as strong as they should oh, have been. Sure. So it's by no means, a, it is by no means an airtight mm-hmm. definition, but that's the definition I'm using in the book. And, and as part of this definition, one of the things you're interested in, in is what you call cultural resonance. So not simply looking at those quantitative values of property loss and lives lost, but also the meaning that people give to it or how they try to make sense of it. Right. And so, yeah, so anybody who is looking at this book, um, which, you know, is pretty in-depth up till maybe around 1850, thereabouts, um, and their favorite disaster is not there, well, you know, I'm sorry, but clearly (laughs) this is not, it's not an encyclopedia of every disaster that ever happened. I mean, what I did was... Um, I read a lot of newspapers, I read a lot of sermons, I read a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. from the period and basically wrote about the ones that seemed to me to be the ones that people at the time were talking about. So um, so, so a couple of really interesting examples. Um, In the early American Republic, fires happened a lot in cities. It was really pretty uncommon that people died in these fires because most of the buildings were low. So you'd have huge property losses. Um, You know, maybe one person died, maybe no people at all. Um, But yet certain of these fires would have tremendous cultural resonance, Mm -hmm. um, you know, because of the context, the larger context that they that they occurred in, um, steamboats. I mean, steamboats are exploding all over the United States. And my last chapter um, is about exploding steamboats. Um, You know, there are hundreds of them that explode. Some of them are more important than others in terms of the cultural discourse, in terms of, um, you know, the stories told about them, in terms of um, especially... Um, nudging Congress to get involved in regulating mm-hmm. um, the steamboat inter- industry. Um, you know, why are some of them more important than others? Some of it has to do with location. Um, you know, not surprisingly, sure. a couple of the ones that happen in the New York area, New York even then is like the kind of media capital of the United States. Um, they're just really, really, really um, influential and important, um, even though some of the others might have been more costly in terms mm-hmm. of lives or even in terms of property. Well, one of the points you make is that the Enlightenment plays a significant role in shaping how people in the 18th century and into the 19th century begin to react to disasters or, um, or as I said earlier, give meaning to them. So what is the significance of the Enlightenment for the development of disaster as a process? Well, I think there are three main points that I would pull out of the, you know, sort of vast and complicated um, nature of the Enlightenment um, that are are really, really sort of relevant to this culture of calamity that I'm talking about or preconditions for its development. Um, First of all, um, the increasing availability of information, mostly because of the rise of print culture. Mm. I mean, one of the reasons why there's no disaster relief for Jamestown is because nobody knows about it. Um, There are no newspapers. The only people who really know what's going on at Jamestown um, are the people in the Virginia Company in London, and they're not telling anyone because if they tell people, they won't get more settlers and they won't get more investors. So one is the flow of information. 
um, because of the spread of print culture, which means not only newspapers, um, but things like sermons that are published, um, things like travel books, shipwreck narratives, which are a really important mm. part of my story, um, you know, and novels even, poetry, a lot of bad poetry written about <laughs> disasters, actually. Um, so that's the first thing, information. The second thing is um, science. Um, and, and what I mean by science in the context of the Enlightenment really is most fundamentally um, this belief that people can use their reason mm. um, to understand why things happen and if not to prevent them from happening, then to mitigate their bad effects. So like one um, really good example of that is, um, you know, shipwrecks are, are pervasive at a time when yeah. people are, you know, not only pe these ships are carrying people, but they're carrying valuable cargoes. Well, um, you know, in the 16th century, the response to that might have been, oh, well, that's the will of God. This is, mm -hmm. you know, let's go pray about it. Sure. Um, by the time you get to the 18th century, I mean, people are still praying about shipwrecks, um, but they're also um, starting to say, well, okay, you know, how can we improve um, maritime architecture, shipbuilding? Um, how can we invent flotation devices so that even if the ships sink, um, people will be saved? And so the first life jackets, which are made of cork, date to this period. Oh. Um, and so, and there are also some really funny other inventions of ways to float people, but the life jackets obviously are the one that stick. <laughs> and then the third thing um, has to do with um, the idea of what people at the time called sensibility, mm -hmm. um, you know, or the idea, and when we think of the Enlightenment, we always think about, you know, reason um, and, and science and things like that. But another side of the Enlightenment, mostly coming from the Scottish Enlightenment, um, is this idea that um, people have this innate um, moral sense um, and that the ability to feel emotion um, and to feel sympathy or empathy for suffering people um, is a sign of humanity and something to be valued. So, you know, one of the things as the strand of the culture of calamity that involves like the human interest stories, um, you know, shipwreck narratives um, become these sort of tragic stories of, you know, people you know, being marooned and, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, losing family members and things like that. Um, you know, even, even art, right? I mean, so there are paintings yeah. of, of, of shipwrecks and other bad things that happen that focus on the human victims um, rather than, than just the, the sort of physical, oh, the mm -hmm. ship was destroyed and we lost the cargo of tobacco or whatever. So I would say that those are the three main things, um, information, science, and sensibility. And, and if you think about the way we do disaster even today, um, these are three really important components of, of you know, what happens during and after a Superstorm Sandy, a mm -hmm. Hurricane Katrina, a famine in Ethiopia, right? Yeah. You know, um, and that kind of all drives the sort of sequence you see in, in sort of modern disasters, how we respond to them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so right. is it the, the 1755 Lisbon earthquake where you see really these ideas coming to bear for really the first time in a very sort of comprehensive way? Yeah, in a really comprehensive, um, geographically comprehensive. Um, so news about Lisbon doesn't only spread throughout Europe, it spreads throughout the Americas, north mm. and south, because obviously um, Portugal has an important and very wealthy colony um, in Brazil. Comprehensive also in terms of, of 
genre, right? Um, so people are writing news reports um, about Lisbon. They're writing these sort of tearful eyewitness accounts. Mm -hmm. um, the clergy are writing sermons. People are producing images and unprecedented numbers um, of, of the ruined city and the rebuilding. Um, you know, and images are something that these people don't live in a world that is as image-laden as ours. Mm -hmm. And so, like, before Lisbon, I, the, the only disaster before Lisbon that I discovered where there were visual images of it um, was the Great Fire of London in 1666. Oh, yeah. And there are, there are a couple of paintings made of that in the 1670s. Um, there are a couple of contemporary, I, I, I guess they're woodcuts. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we're talking maybe a small handful. Sure. Um, after Lisbon, I think it's like close to 100 of, of various different sorts of images. Wow. Um, there's poetry. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, Candide by Voltaire, which is something that, you know, people still read in high school today. Today. Yeah. Um, but basically, um, everyone who was anyone in the cultural landscape um, was writing or saying or producing mm -hmm. something. So, you know, people like John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, um, George Whitfield, um, another really important evangelical, um, you know, Kant, Voltaire, I mean, all of these people. Um, you know, it, Puritan ministers, well, they're not really Puritans anymore, but ministers mm -hmm. in New England um, are, are, are giving sermons, um, not least because there's a much lesser earthquake that happens in New England a couple of weeks after that, and people sort of see a connection. Oh. Well, yeah, God was mad at Lisbon, but now he's mad at us. Not quite as mad, because it's not a really bad earthquake, but he's exactly. a little bit mad, you know. And, and so, I mean, yeah, so Lisbon is a huge turning point. It's also a huge turning point um, because it gives rise to the first inter international disaster relief effort mm -hmm. in world history, and it's hugely international. I mean, it's not just... England pitching in because the English and the Portuguese have been allies since the 13th century yeah. and because there are English um, merchants who are living in Lisbon. Um, I, I mean, everybody is pitching mm -hmm. in um, in very, um, you know, generous but, but very public sorts of ways as well. well. And one of the big big donors is George II, right? From, yes. Um, from England. And so uh, at one time you were a Georgian Papers fellow and you, so you went to England to hoping to find a great deal of information uh, related to the king's gift to the Portuguese right. so they could rebuild Lisbon. What did you find there? Nothing. <laughs> no, I mean, I actually, I think I finally, at the end, of the, toward the end of the month, I found one little line saying something about money for Lisbon. And, um, you know, which, I mean, on the one hand, it was a great experience and it was super fun reading, um, you know, the, the, the Georgian papers. Um, I mean, I ultimately decided that I was just going to go through these things hoping to find something yeah. relevant. But otherwise, you know, like I would read about the King's Menagerie, which I thought was really, which was not at all a disaster. It was fine. But the zebra died. That was sad. But, yeah. but you know, but, but, <laughs> but, um you know, but I mean, I think, I mean, it also sort of got me to thinking about um, benevolence and philanthropy and royal benevolence and philanthropy, um, I think, in different ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the fact that George II's gift 
of like 100,000 pounds, unprecedented, sure. um, was widely known on both sides and, and celebrated on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So there are sermons, there are newspaper articles, there are, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, but yet we don't find them in the royal, find reference to it in the royal papers. Just really underlines what a public performance this was. Yeah, you know, and that that um, that a hundred thousand pounds. Yeah, I mean it's a lot of money, but it's way more important in terms of the way it plays to a public audience mm-hmm. than in terms of what it means in the king's sort of private papers or private accounts or, or whatever. Sure. Um, so, like, the king's not talking about it, but everybody else is, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting. And just um, what he wants, too. Presumably, yeah. one would think, um, you know, especially since he wasn't really one of the glamour kings. He was, like, 80 years old, and he only spoke German, yeah. um, you know. So, um, you know, and then the other thing was um, I did find um, a lot of uh, account books over there that, that pertain to other members of the royal family. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you could see um, in terms of some of their accounts was – Number one, and I mean, I didn't discover this. People have written about this, that, that these people, um, as very wealthy and prominent people in their society, were always giving money to charity. Uh, it's, uh, it, was, it was part of the expectation, right? But they're giving it in small bits, and lots of times their gifts are like face-to-face. So like when they're in Windsor, they might say, oh, I gave 10 pence to the beggar who was outside mm-hmm. the castle mm-hmm. or whatever. But what you see happening over time um, is that philanthropy and benevolence is getting more institutionalized so that by the time we get to the Lisbon earthquake, people in the royal family are giving money to um, hospitals and, and my favorite, the Society for Decayed Musicians, who were, who were musicians who had retired. I don't know how decayed they actually were. But the point is that, 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 that philanthropy and benevolence is becoming, mm-hmm. it's being done on a larger scale, and it's more sort of um, gravitating towards institutions. And, I mean, I think that, you know, one way to think about um, the king's gift to Portugal um, and about other efforts by the king and parliament, but especially by these um, sort of local benevolent societies um, to do disaster relief in places like Boston and Montreal um, and the, the hurricane-ravaged yeah. um, British West Indies um, in the decades after Lisbon, um, that, that, kind, that insight that, mm-hmm. that philanthropy is, is happening on a bigger scale and on a more organized scale um, by the time you get to the middle of the 18th century is a kind of interesting one. So is there an expectation then that there will be more private philanthropy but not necessarily state action? I think after Lisbon, partly because, um, you know, colonists are totally into celebrating how generous the king is mm-hmm. and how that reflects so well on them as Britons because they see themselves as part of this, you know, British imperial community. Um, after Lisbon, colonists expect help from England. Uh, I'm not sure that they're really, you know, they really care where the help is coming from. Mm-hmm. And so they'll try to get it from wherever they can. And and for the most part, they do end up getting help. Um, lots of times it's merchants forming relief committees to, to, to raise money for American disaster victims. Um, sometimes um, it comes from the king and parliament. 
Um, and, and in fact, after the American Revolution, um, it, I think it does kind of become standard practice within the British Empire um, for the king and parliament to send aid um, to colonies when, when, they're, when they're in distress. And I mean, it's almost kind of like that, you know, say Jamaica, Barbados, where there's a really bad hurricane mm-hmm. in 1780, um, they send over an unprecedented amount of, of money and supplies. And this is government aid. And it's it's a kind of recognition that okay you know you guys are ro- you guys are loyal colonies, um, you didn't join the revolution, sure. um, you're important to us. And on the one hand, as part of the empire, we are going to govern you. Make no mistake about that. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, as part of the empire, we will also take care of you. Sure. In times like this, so they want to make an extra investment, just you know, yeah, especially in the middle of a war too. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean I I have not research this myself because it's kind of beyond the scope of my study. But, um, you know, some scholars argue, I think pretty convincingly, that for the next half century or so after the American Revolution, um, disaster relief within the British Empire sort of becomes commonplace. Standard. And it's coming from the government. Um, That changes, um, you know, like in the 1840s and 50s with the Irish famine and with the rise of, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of Malthusian ideas about, you know, who should get help and who shouldn't. But but for about a half century after the revolution, and a really good example of that is there's there's a famine um, in the northeastern part of the United States and adjacent parts of Canada. Um, and I think 1789, and um, and Alan Taylor has written about this, and it's this great example of, you know, what's the difference between the United States and Canada when people are still trying to work out exactly what those yeah. differences are. Um, when the famine happens, um, the British send over, you know, literally boatloads of grain, oh. and they ease, you know, sort of... Um, import and export duties that would limit the supply of grain to mm-hmm. people who who need it. Um, and, you know, south of the border, Americans are kind of like, well, you're on your own. You know, yeah. figure it out, yeah. <laughs> you know. And, and, and it's, I mean, it's a very, very different approach to, mm-hmm. um, to government and to, th- and to, cons- and, and to sort of thinking, well, okay, we have this government, what are its responsibilities? Mm-hmm. So in the new United States, then there's less of a, of a, expectation that the government will intervene and say, you know, the yellow fever epidemics in Philadelphia or the fires in New York. Yeah, the the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia is fascinating. And I mean, a lot of people have written a lot of smart things about it. But I mean, it's interesting to me um, because in 1793, um, and this is an epidemic that eventually kills like 5,000 people. In 1793, Philadelphia is the seat of three governments, the federal government, the state government, and of course the municipal government. And the response of all three of those governments is to run away. Just like, (laughs) okay, we're out of here. We'll we'll, we'll be, we'll be back when this is over with. And, um, and if you, I mean, since you're based at Mount Vernon, if you look at George Washington's papers for that time when they're out of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. um, you know, Washington really thinks that the government has things to do and he tries to get um, Congress to reconvene someplace else. His attorney general says, nah, that's not legal. We really shouldn't do that. But when he's writing to members of his cabinet and members of his cabinet are writing to him, it is quite clear that they think the war in Europe is a much more important thing for them to be thinking about than the 
fever in Philadelphia. Oh, it's just not something mm-hmm. that, that, that they see as something that they should be dealing mm-hmm. with. And so what happens in Philadelphia is um, a committee of citizen volunteers are the ones who are, you know, tending the sick and burying the dead. And, and um, you know, government actually has absolutely nothing to do mm-hmm. with it at any level. And so, like, you know, when you tell people that, oh, you know, no, the federal government is not involved in disaster relief during um, you know, this period, I mean, their sort of default is, well, of course, but the, the states are doing it. The states aren't doing it either. I mean, this is sure. just not something that, that governments are doing. So do we see that change then, or I guess a beginning of a change in the 19th century when you see things like railroads and steamboats emerge and that there's a, as you said, these things blow up spectacularly. And so are there, are there one calls to uh, regulate these new industries uh, in ways that have not been done before? And two, is there is there an expectation then that the state should provide some kind of relief? The steamboats um, have a profound impact um, on both public opinion and public policy. Because, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting is during this long period when the federal government is not doing any sort of disaster relief or prevention, um, you know, I think it's important to note that nobody's really calling for them to do that either. Mm-hmm. And so people are like, you know, okay, this is the way it is. What happens with the steamboats is that they are exploding all over the place and people are dying and they're dying in very, very graphic and, you know, kind of grisly ways. Um, These explosions are amply covered by newspapers using very, very graphic language. And the thing about steamboats is that they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And so, like, you might read about a hurricane in a newspaper and you might think, well, you know, hurricanes don't happen where I live. Um, You might read about an urban fire and you might be living on a farm somewhere in Kentucky saying, Mm -hmm. well, you know, we don't do that here because we don't live in cities. Um, The steamboat explosions were really, really relatable to people. So the stories were, you know, just grisly. Um, The steamboat, um, it was was a kind of disaster that people could relate to because most people had either been on one or knew someone who had been on one. And it's just like, wow, you know, this could happen to me. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, there are... There are public meetings, especially in, you know, towns and cities that were kind of located near the site of these disasters mm-hmm. when, like, body parts would blow up on and, like, land on the sidewalk or, or you know, wash nice. up on shore, yeah. right, you know. And and so they would have these, these public meetings and they would demand um, – Congressional intervention because they believed, I think quite rightly, that that American steamboat companies, um, you know, that they were always racing. There was a certain amount of hubris involved in this. Wow. A lot of the people who were working on the boats maybe really weren't trained to do that. And so, I mean, eventually um, the first law, um, the first steamboat law is passed in 1838. It is the first piece of legislation that Congress passes that aims to regulate a private industry. Mm. Um, it's full of loopholes, and it accomplishes nothing. Actually, steamboat fatalities go up after the law. Not because of the law, but just because the sure. law didn't do anything. Um, in 1852, they pass another law, and that law did save lives. I mean, it... it, it and, 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 and so that is... I mean, people think of regulation, um, government regulation, as being... Um, result 
of the railroad industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would argue that the steamboats are first, and what happens with railroads in a lot of ways is kind of, um, you know, modeled on Mm -hmm. what came earlier um, with the steamboats. Um, In terms of government providing relief, um, I mean, there's no blanket federal disaster relief law um, in the United States until 1950. That late? Yeah. And so relief, federal relief happens before then, but it's on an ad hoc basis. And very often what, you know, some historians will say, oh, look, the federal government's doing disaster relief. I mean, it's not what we would consider disaster Mm -hmm. relief at all. So there's a law passed in... um, 1803, immediately following a fire in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, And a lot of historians will say, oh, this is the first federal disaster relief legislation. And we know from the Portsmouth fire that lots of people were left homeless. You know, they talk about, you know, the widows and orphans and, you know, all Mm -hmm. of these people who are suffering, not necessarily physical hardship, but, you know, they've lost everything as a result of the fire. And if you look at what this law did this so-called first federal disaster relief legislation, all it did was it established a moratorium on the collection of customs duties owed by merchants in Portsmouth. (laughs) So it has nothing to do with humanitarian relief. Um, Humanitarian relief, um, with one exception that has to do with Alexandria, now Virginia, but then part of D.C., Mm -hmm. okay, so governed by Congress, that's like the sole exception um, humanitarian relief isn't something that Congress does, like, ever until after the Civil War. And the initial um, instances of that are kind of tied to Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in the 1870s, you know, there are parts of the South that the federal government is trying to, you know, intervene in and reconstruct. And, and um, you know, there are crop failures, there are droughts, there are insect infestations, and, and basically people are going to be starving and they're going to be, um, you know, so the federal government intervenes there. Um, you know, arguably that's as much about, you know, humanitarian concerns as it is about maintaining politically, political stability um, in an area that, that, you know, is mm-hmm. pretty messed up in a lot of ways, um, politically speaking. Um, if you look at the congressional record um, you see in the 70s and the 80s, um, occasionally, like, the Army or other people will, you know, go in and give supplies to people um, when there are floods, mostly in the Midwest and in the Mississippi Valley, um, when there are insect infestations, which were, like, a big thing in the late 19th century. Sure. Um, and thing, But it's still, I mean, it's very ad hoc. It's very intermittent. Um, one of the other interesting things that's happening in the post-Civil War era is that the Red Cross morphs from being an organization that during the war takes care of sick and wounded soldiers, but after the war is over, Clara Barton sort of does this pivot, and after the federal government mm-hmm. says, well, you know, we don't need you guys anymore, um, and says, okay, fine, you know, we're not going to disband, but we're going to look at disaster relief instead. Mm-hmm. So Clara Barton and the Red Cross, you know, the, they'll, like, go to Illinois for a tornado. They'll go you know, somewhere for for a a flood or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the Johnstown flood is kind of, you know, their biggest challenge to date in 1889. Um, The Johnstown flood is the most deadly disaster 
um, in American history. Mm -hmm. um, over 6,000 people are killed. Um, in 1900, the hurricane in Galveston overtakes it. But still, um, 6,000 people to die in this, you know, relatively small town was sure. a big deal. Um, and a big deal that was made even bigger um, by virtue of the fact that by the time you get to 1889, you have um, not just news reporters who have cameras, but mm. just like normal people who have cameras. Sure, and yeah. so people are there, you know, snapping pictures. Um, they're using telegraphs to get the news. The telegraph is invented in the 1840s. People don't use it for news really until the mm. Civil War. So Johnstown, and Johnstown is this um, just really photographable disaster <laughs> because it's not, you know, I mean, it's not just like a flood that, oh, you know, there's water everywhere, but there are like, um, you know, buildings and pieces of buildings and all of these sure. kind of weird configurations and um, railroad bridges that are collapsed. And so, um, you know, and I mean, I, I would have ima I would imagine that had Congress been in session when Johnstown happened, there probably would have mm -hmm. been some sort of disaster relief, but they weren't. Um, and Clara Barton and the Red Cross and all these other fundraising efforts did such a great job yeah. that by the time Congress got back into session, um, she was back in Washington. They were throwing parties for her and saying, woohoo, high fives, you did great, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. yeah. So, wow. Yeah. Well, we are recording this in March of 2020. And as listeners will know, there's the coronavirus is very much in the news these days. And of course, a longer term challenge is climate change and how that's, you know, affecting our uh, ecosystem and climate and our weather patterns, and so we'll likely have stronger hurricanes, flooding, um, wildfires in California have been horrific in the last mm -hmm. few years. Wildfires in Australia have been particularly horrific in the last six months. And so what are some of the lessons we might take away from how our predecessors dealt with disasters in the 18th and 19th century that might not make this any better, but at least sort of give us some insight to how we might respond to future disasters. Well, I mean, I mean, the one thing um, that, that isn't exactly on point, but that, that I think is like a really important point to make is, um, you know, this whole idea of, you know, what was the original intent of the founders, which, I mean, First of all, it's really impossible to, to discern, mm -hmm. you know, which founder do you mean? They, they disagreed about a lot of stuff. Um, but, I mean, I find it really interesting that, that a lot of people who under other circumstances would be all about, um, you know, gee, we need to go with the original intent of the founders. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if their beach house gets messed up in a hurricane, they're more than happy to have federal flood insurance or to have, um, you know, disaster relief come into their community. And, um, you know, and I mean, I guess the point that I would make was not that the founding fathers were callous or clueless. Um, I don't mean to say that at all. Um, and, and I am also not trying to make the point that we should just sort of forget everything that we think the founders believed in. Um, but just that we live in a very different world. Mm -hmm. um, we live in a world, for instance, where people um, tend to be less rooted in their communities than um, 
than they would have been a couple of hundred years ago. And so it's not automatic that if disaster strikes, you can sort of rely on your own family or, you know, maybe a church that you've been a member, your family's been a member for, for generations. We're a little more uprooted um, or unrooted in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's really important. Um, another point that is really important is that when we think about disaster relief, I mean, a lot of people today... Um, and I'm thinking of, um, you know, among other people, the journalist um, Rebecca Solnit and the, the, the humanitarian um, chef, Jose Andres, who sure. did amazing work um, with World Central Kitchen in Puerto Rico. I mean, a lot of people will argue that um, the most effective disaster relief is grassroots disaster relief. Mm-hmm. And, and they have some pretty good evidence to marshal in support of that view. Um, on the other hand, um, I mean, I think history has a lot of examples um, that show that community-based disaster relief can be um, can be elitist, can be racist, most certainly, mm-hmm. um, and that for that reason, I, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, New Orleans in the aftermath of Hurricane Betsy or Hurricane Katrina, or whether we're talking about the aftermath of the San Francisco earthquake where, you know, white people basically tried to um, rip off Chinese Americans and get title to their land, or whether we're talking about the aftermath of the Chicago fire where basically rich white people made judgments about, you know, who deserved aid and who didn't based on on class and gender and and, you know, grounds that just were not um, egalitarian. So, I mean, I think that, you know, in an ideal world, um, you have both federal oversight and you, you have this combination of federal oversight and government involvement and grassroots efforts mm-hmm. that, that, that ideally, you know, can work together um, efficiently. Um, and uh, and obviously that did not happen in Puerto Rico and the, and the whole thrust of Jose Andres's book is that we fed an island yeah. um, because the federal government's response was like was like so messed up. I don't think, though, the appropriate response to that is to get the federal government out of the business of disaster mm-hmm. relief. I think it, it, the response is to get, you know, sort of um, smart professionals who have experience and and um, and also to give them free reign to do the sort of thing that 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 you know, that will work better than, than what's been done. Um, you know, I mean, in terms of, in terms of climate change and all of that, my God, I mean, you know, one of the things that is remarkable to me is that, you know, in the Enlightenment era and, you know, on through the 19th century, I mean, the, the, the problem with science insofar as there was a problem is that people didn't know everything that they really wanted to know and that they felt they needed to know. They didn't know how hurricanes worked. They didn't know how earthquakes worked. And they really, really worked hard. Um, You know, people devoted their lives Mm -hmm. um, to finding out this stuff. Um, Ideally, not just to understand it, but to to make use of that information and kind of make the world better um, and more inhabitable. Um, safely for human beings. I mean, it seems the problem that we have now or the issue that we have now with science is something entirely different. People know all kinds of things. Um, It's just that a lot of people um, and people in power um, 
lack the political will or the economic will to act on what we know. I mean, so it's a science is still like a really, really important part of the equation. But the but the kind of the problems that scientists face um, are are really rather different. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that's an important lesson. Um, Depressing, but important. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it won't be long, I imagine, before there is some kind of other disaster, catastrophe, calamity, however you (laughs) want to define it, unfortunately. But hopefully some of the folks who uh, have to deal with that or respond to it will read your book. uh, And hopefully some of those people in power will read your book as well. That would be nice. (laughs) Well, Cindy, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun, and uh, we'll have you back on the program sometime soon. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our theme music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.